Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. Allahu Akbar. Our Father, who art in heaven, Domine speravi, non confunda in eternum. In you, O Lord, I trust. May I never Shema be Israel, confounded. Walk cheerfully over the earth, answering that of God in every one. You're listening to Kindred Spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits. I'm David Freudberg. Our guest today is Brother David Stendhal Rost, a Benedictine monk who has discovered connections between contemplative life East and West. In this program, recorded on a sun-bathed spring day in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Brother David talks of focusing one's awareness. It means, among other things, being present where you are. Uh, being mindful of the place where you are. Not, that means, for instance, not being with your thoughts and, and with your preoccupations constantly ahead of yourself. And we are and all. Uh, I'm very well aware of the same tendency within myself, that uh, all the time uh, a good part of ourselves is ahead of us and sort of... 49% of me are always reaching out to something else that, that is not yet, has not yet come impatiently. And then another part of us hangs on to something that was very good in the past but is no longer really there for us. So another 49% is hanging on to the past. So there's about 2% of me left to be present where I am. In some moments, rare moments, Something, something pops and I'm totally present where I am. That happens to all of us, fortunately, and so we know how blissful this can be. But to cultivate that now and see that this is really the moment when I'm truly myself uh, and, and to recapture that, but not by going back again to it, but by living out of that energy that makes us present where we are, that would be one aspect of mindfulness. Hmm? Toward cutting away these attachments and mental trips and desires and fantasies and memories and karmic inheritances and all this baggage we carry with us. How in your tradition do you sort of surrender all of, all of that static to the higher power which can then free you? Yes. Uh, well, in the Christian context, uh, there is a lot of emphasis 
on the, what you called cutting away and severing yourself and re rejecting, leaving behind and so forth. But we are just now discovering, so to say, rediscovering that uh, there is a lot more to it that has a much more positive bent. And, and many people who are m very close to what uh, the Christian tradition really stands for are totally alienated from its present form because they are closer to what it's really all about than the, those who call themselves Christians and who are sort of the official representatives of, of the Christian tradition today. And what I'm talking about is a positive approach to it. Uh, incarnation is the, is the key word in the Christian tradition. Uh, the word was made flesh. Uh, God is present among us. Emmanuel is the Old Testament uh, word for it. God in the midst of us, the Holy One in the midst of us, the altogether different one right present here among us. And uh, therefore, that what you call the effort of uh, living present where you are is not so much uh, cutting off of this or cutting off of that or getting rid of distractions, but it's rather a, an, an effort, if you want to call it that, of channeling the energies into the encounter with God, with ultimate reality, here and now, at this present moment. And therefore, largely, again, a becoming mindful in the sense of uh, using your senses. You see, there is a, uh, what we call a Manichaean streak in, uh, in uh, Christianity. In uh, wh what kind of streak? Manichaean. Uh, the Manichaeans were a, a heresy, an ancient, ancient heresy that uh, said that uh, uh, everything that has to do with the body and with the senses is really bad and only the spirit, only the mind is good. And so you cut the human person in half and, uh, and you cultivate the mind and, and what you do with the body is really not all that important. It's sort of uh, it's just a, a prison in which you find yourself almost. And although clearly and strongly this um, approach to life was rejected by the Christian tradition at a very early stage, uh, somehow it seeped into the fabric and we have never f completely gotten rid of it. And so one of the great wonderful things that is being discovered in the present, at the present time, is to open yourself to the presence of God positively through gratefully responding to all the gifts of God. And when I say mindfulness, I mean largely also gratefulness. Real mindfulness is gratefulness. So you gratefully listen to everything that's to be listened to. You gratefully look at anything that's to be seen and you see God through it, in it. Uh, you gratefully smell, you gratefully taste, you gratefully touch, you are open to your senses and so you make sense of your life. That's more or less the approach that I'm talking about. Sort of looking at the senses as, as tools by which to discover God rather than as some wrong possibility. Exactly, and I wouldn't even use the word tools, I would rather say windows through which we uh, look out on God or ways in which we encounter God. And many people think uh, when, oh, you now here you're interviewing a monk and well, monasticism is just exactly the opposite of it. They think asceticism means 
cutting yourself off and leaving behind and so forth. Uh, asceticism means training, literally, and it is, a, among other things, but rather centrally, a training of your senses to become more mindful, more grateful, more open to that divine reality or whatever you might call it, to, to reality, to the ultimate reality. And uh, therefore, that aspect of asceticism, which is so often put in the, f in the foreground, uh, a certain restriction of, uh, of the senses, uh, of the body, is only meant as a purification, as a putting things in order, a regaining the balance, but not as if the senses were something bad. Uh, Let's take fasting, for instance. Many people today have rediscovered fasting, uh, many out, completely outside of any religious context. Fasting is a good example. You don't fast in order to diminish your body, to diminish your aliveness. You fast in order to raise your aliveness to a new level. Uh, if you cannot eat with total enjoyment, what is the point of fasting? Uh, that is nothing new, but it is something new in re-accepting it, in reaffirming it. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the great uh, monks of the Middle Ages, uh, one of the great teachers of the church uh, uh, wrote a book on fasting, the benefits of fasting. The very first benefit of fasting that he lists there is that after you have fasted, you can really enjoy food so much more. Now, people don't think of that when they hear that a monk in the Middle Ages would write about fasting. But the real enjoyment is uh, a way of, of gratefully making contact with the divine reality that gives itself to you through the food. That's just with regard to that one little element, an example. A few times from what you've said, I've gotten the feeling that you're, you're uncomfortable with the idea of, of effort or struggle. Um, and yet in my search, I find that that there is a, a process of growth that requires um, transition and leaving some attachments behind and uh, reaching for new awareness and new states. If not through effort, how is this accomplished? <clears throat> I think you have a very good point there. Without effort, it cannot be accomplished. But I have to say a, a couple of things before I feel comfortable that you have really understood what I said when I said it does take effort. Namely, normally when we speak of effort, we think of something that is willful. I set my mind to it, and now I make my mind up, and, and I, uh, I will accomplish it. And so it's, it's a willful kind of thing. While in spiritual life, as I understand it, everything depends on overcoming precisely that willfulness. So precisely that which is behind what we normally call making an effort is the thing that the effort should go into overcoming. So you could never throw a tantrum and demand God's presence. How could you possibly? That's, that's obviously impossible. But it goes even deeper. What we are talking about is discipline. 
And discipline is something completely different from regimentation. And regimentation can, is sometimes imposed on you from the outside, but can even be imposed on you from within yourself, by yourself, and is equally bad. And regimentation would be that willful effort that's making up your mind that now I'm going to do it regardless. Now, even the two words um, is a good indication of, of the difference between the two. Regimentation is a military expression. It's to do with a regiment. Uh, the drill sergeant will uh, help you with your regimentation, so to say. Uh, discipline is a word that comes from uh, the school context and school in the best sense. The trouble with our schools is that mostly they are, uh, have fallen prey to regimentation, so uh, don't get the wrong uh, idea. But let's say a very good play school or something like that. Uh, and discipline is the attitude of the disciple, of the pupil. Now, this word pupil, again, is very beautiful. Uh, it means both the student and it means that little black thing that you have in your eye. Why? Because the pupil sees himself or herself in the eyes of the teacher. This eye contact, that being eye to eye, that is the essence of discipline. You are eye in eye with the teacher and therefore lovingly, now you undergo the discipline and you do what the teacher wants and that is a joy it is it is difficult and it it is the more joy the more difficult it gets because it's a challenge and so forth but you can also see that this is life affirming and this is, is growth promoting rather than uh, the effort of regimentation whether you impose it on yourself or whether you subject yourself to it and therefore the effort that we are really talking about is, if rightly understood, the effort to make no effort. See? The effort to let go, the effort to give yourself to that which is offered to you, to respond. How do you give yourself? How do you give yourself? By moment by moment listening mindfully, that's where we come back to mindfulness, and gratefully, joyfully, therefore, to what this moment offers you. And I don't see demands from you, but offers you. And, and that is the other side of demand. I'm not ruling out this demand. Uh, you have to know with whom you're talking. So there are certain people with whom I would talk a different language, but <laughs> I have a, the majority of people today need to hear just this particular slant, and that's why I'm answering you in this particular way. Uh, the, uh, the response of, of giving yourself, how do you give yourself? Well, uh, by joyfully taking up the opportunity that is given to you. See, you. I look at every moment and everything and every person I encounter as gift. That is the first step. Uh, that demands a great deal of trust because you trust in the giver, in the given. Given, we speak about this is a given situation. We live in a given world. All right, let's take that seriously. Then it is a gift. How do you respond to a gift? Gratefully. What is the gift within every gift? Opportunity. So how do I respond to this opportunity? S most of the time, I was going to say sometimes, but we have to admit most of the time, the opportunity is an opportunity to enjoy. Mm -hmm. 
we don't realize that because we are not open to it. But if we really realize that most of the day and most of our life, we are offered the opportunity to enjoy. If we did that, if we really enjoyed moment by moment whatever is given to us to enjoy and focused on the things that are enjoyable rather than on the other things, we would gradually build up to such a strength that when something comes that isn't strictly enjoyable but is also an opportunity to do something else, we would be able to rise to that occasion. And that means sometimes opportunity to suffer opportunity to do something about it in protest. See, I'm not just simply saying that gratefulness is wallowing around in all these wonderful things. Very often you find yourself confronted with something that demands a response from you and that demands doing something and doing something that is hard and difficult. It may be protest outside there against injustice, not only injustice against yourself, but mostly injustice against others with whom you identify yourself. That is still part of mindfulness, that's part of gratefulness, that's part of monastic life, that's part of the monk within each of us. Then other things, suffering. There is a lot of suffering that we cannot avoid, but suffering with the grain rather than against the grain. That is an area. Hmm? What does that mean, so suffering with the grain rather than against it? Well, that is an area that the Buddhists have uh, developed uh, very much, and, and Buddhist monks. Suffering is not overcome by leaving pain behind, but by bearing pain for others. Now, that's the Bodhisattva ideal, but that is perfectly Christian too. You look at what does this, this moment offer me as opportunity, or if you want, what does it demand from me? And if what it offers to me demands suffering, I'm happy, I'm willing to accept it. I may be crying from pain and, 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 and so forth, but it is suffering that is with the grain, with the grain of the flow of, of, of the situation. Do you think it's possible for one to so extinguish himself in God that there would be outer suffering going on, but inwardly there would be peace? Again, I find a little difficulty with the word extinguishing yourself in God. God doesn't distinguish yourself. Even that word uh, nirvana, which has something to do with extinguishing, is, uh, if I understand it correctly, uh, that kind of extinguishing that happens to a candle when the sun rises. The candle doesn't go out, but you don't even see it anymore because there's so much more light, more like this. But, uh, but it, that is just a little point. The main, it's, a good, it's a good point. <laughs> the main answer to your question is, yes, and I have seen these people, and I've seen them in many different traditions. Uh, there are people who are so deeply at peace, so deeply rooted in what really matters, that uh, they happily bear the pain. And that isn't something that you have to go to the Himalayas to see some gurus there. You find it, I'm sure, here in Cambridge, probably in this block you find a lot of these people. And they would be surprised that you say that they, they have accomplished this great thing. Uh, mothers who very happily and peacefully bear all the pain that comes not only with giving birth to children but giving birth to children over and over again and it's getting more and more difficult the bigger they get and so <laughs> forth. That is what we are talking about, no? You say that you've met so many such people in different traditions and different faiths. 
what are they like when you meet them? What, what sort of distinguishes people who've developed that ability to, to give of themselves? Uh, what is it in them uh, that sort of calls you to them? Well, you spoke about a deep peace. Hmm? Uh, I said a, a deep joy. I think that expresses itself in a great calmness, hmm? not in this happy-go-lucky type thing. You see, that's not what I think. Uh, that's not what I have experienced. That's not what I expect. Uh, when I see somebody who is all oh, joy, 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 and 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 and, and cheerfulness, to see this happy-go-lucky type of cheerfulness. I have my doubts, you see. Uh, that those persons protest too much. <laughs> There's something underneath that isn't all that cheerful. Uh, but if a person is very calm and even has... A, I would even go so far as to say an air of sadness, because this world is a sad place. Yeah, the moment I say it, I, I already realize how misunderstood this could be, you know. Uh, Someone who understands the, the superficialities of the world and the tragedy there, but also the deeper meanings within. Yeah, well, somebody who has even accepted that deep down at the heart of things there are tears and that they are not the opposite of joy, but that they belong to joy. How about at those moments when, when the sadness of the world sits with you in the wrong way and you feel a certain depression or, or a low point? What's able to lift you back up? Oh yes, we, we all go through these, uh, through these moments and uh, I'm afraid all too often. Uh, again, I come back to this uh, key notion of gratefulness. Uh, when you are a little depressed, you can usually still find something that uh, uh, you do with enjoyment and for which you are grateful. And you sh one should actually have uh, a little reservoir, a little store, a little... Uh, pantry of things that uh, inf almost infallibly uh, call forth gratefulness. That particular record that when you turn that on it cheers you up. Or that particular poem, when you read that, it cheers you up. Or that particular person, if you give her a telephone call, it'll cheer you up. Or something of that sort. You, we ought to have these reservoirs at hand. Well, you've piqued my curiosity. <laughs> I have to ask whether you have such a pantry and what's oh, in it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Not records because, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I actually even have a tape recorder and, and have some poems that I, I usually write, read uh, or, or have uh, play on, on, the, on tape. And I have a, a cassette with uh, readings from Gerard Manley Hopkins poems. They invariably do the trick for me. Uh, I go out into nature. I watch the birds. So I do have these things. But there is... There, there come states of depression when this doesn't work anymore. This is too facile. It, as I said, it happens when you are a little depressed, then you can do that. But I think many of us, uh, and I'm certainly familiar with that, fall into states of, well, when you want, want to call it depression, I see it as something different. Uh, the image that I have is uh, when you have a, a beetle, one of those 
beautiful bugs. Let's say one of those gold beetles and they're just beautiful little creatures crawling along and all of a sudden they stumble and turn over and all that's left is this rather spooky little thing with crawling just six little legs crawling and no, no nothing of the glory that you have the, of, on the other side and that's what I feel suddenly something happens and I flip over and all I see is the underside of that beetle that I am and beetles have a hard time getting back on their legs <laughs> they're built in a way that it's almost impossible for them to turn themselves around again something has to come along a little gust of wind or whatever it is and turn them over and when you are on the other side the underside is something that you can just remember you have been there but you can't really say what it was like because it is so different it is so totally the underside and that's the kind of depression that I'm depression if you want that I'm talking about that is very difficult to get out of and uh, at that time I think all that I have learned is to hold still to hold still and wait because sooner or later something happens some catalytic process you need a catalyst to get out of it and something happens a, a, a funny little animal will come around or some child will do something funny and when you start laughing you come out of it again or when maybe not even laughing a certain sense of compassion wells up in you or something like that that makes you you forget yourself and holding still and forgetting yourself has something to do with one another you go on with your own routine that is one very important thing you don't make any switches because of that there must be some external routine that you continue with that's one important thing and the other thing is uh, you try to forget yourself just just hold still just wait it's not much of an advice but but uh, that's all I can think of. I think it's a, it's a nice description of it. You mentioned that sometimes compassion wells up in you and you feel the suffering of others. And maybe at a moment like that, your suffering is, is unified with the suffering of others. And it's that kind of feeling of unity that can bring you back to the whole. Absolutely. And it's not just feeling the suffering of others. Again, uh, there's not only this negative aspect to compassion, it, you feel also the joy of others. You, you are simply united with others. That's what compassion is. And then, of course, there's another side to compassion. When we really enter into compassion, uh, the emphasis that we normally give to that when we speak about it is that you are compassionate to others. But that is only half, and it is by far the less important half of compassion. What you really experience, if you will only focus on it, if you'll only open the ears and, 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 and the eyes of your mind to it, is that you are the object of compassion long before you ever have compassion. Everything has compassion on you. You wouldn't even be around if it weren't for the compassion that everything has for you. you see? Uh, and, I, uh, and I'm not pushing it too hard towards somebody who stands behind all this and has compassion on you. If you, as a Christian, yes, if you draw out the implications, you come to the divine compassion that stands behind everything. But I know that many people experience that compassion long before they can draw out these lines and 
regardless of whether or not they will ever draw out these lines, you see. It is a dimension of being in the world that is accessible to us apart from theism, uh, that we are, receive compassion. We are in a network of compassion where we give compassion but mostly receive compassion. Well, I want to thank you very much for the compassion that you've showered on those of us listening today. We're talking with Brother David Stendel Rost here at the Harvard Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For Kindred Spirits, I'm David Freudberg. Kindred Spirits is produced by David Freudberg. Theme music by Russ Berenberg and Alan Byrne. Studio recording at WGBH Boston. Cassette tapes of this program are available for $9.95 each prepaid. To order cassettes or if you have questions or comments, write to Kindred Spirits, Post Office Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. That's Kindred Spirits, Post Office Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. Our special thanks to the Satellite Program Development Fund at NPR, the Permanent Charity Fund of Boston, the Campbell and Hall Charity Fund, and stations WGBH, WNYC, and WFCR, whose generous support made kindred spirits possible. Thank you very much for listening, and may the spirit of unity bring you peace. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.